You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and uh, worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Heavenly Father, we look to you this morning and pray that you would be pleased to bless us Bless our minds and our hearts with understanding. Line our hearts, Father, with your word and your truth. Father, we pray that you be glorified through our study. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, one of the things I'd like to have maybe rolling around in our minds before we begin to uh, look at verses 8 through 11 is just this, the power of false religion. I don't know if we've ever thought about that, the power of false religion. I mean, we live in a culture, and you've heard me say this many times, and you've heard our culture say this many times, that it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere, right? We've all heard that, haven't we? And I don't know, I mean, some of us have analyzed that a little more deeply than others, but let's just think about that for a moment. It doesn't matter... What you believe, as long as you're sincere. So the important part is sincerity. But what if what you believe is false? What if what you believe is nothing but a lie? What then? I've had these conversations with people. I've had conversations like this with lots of people. And I know a lot of people would answer saying, well, I mean, there's still some benefit to be gained. You know, even if it's not true, if it, if it comforts you, and you can hear that, you can, you, you've heard this too, haven't you? If it comforts you, then what harm could come out of it? Uh, we, we've really become numbed, I think, in so many ways to how toxic lies are. Only a culture that's completely asleep to how cancerous and toxic lies are could even think such a thing for a moment. Lies are powerful, and lies are very destructive. You know, I'm not, history is not my area. I'm not any kind of expert in history, but I know enough to know that lies have started wars, haven't they? I don't know this. I mean, maybe some of you would know better than this. You certainly know better than I. But I wouldn't be a bit surprised if every war had some kind of deceitfulness associated with it, some kind of lie. I mean, even in my own life, we know of wars that have been predicated on lies, where lives have been lost and ruined because of lies. This is my area of expertise, and I can tell you that every soul that suffers in eternity, every soul that's lost is lost due to lies. I can say that 
of the authority of God's word. That is a, that is a fact. Let's think about families that have been broken because of lies. Let's think about businesses that have been lost because of lies. Let's think about reputations that have been lost because of lies. Lies are powerful. They're not, the point is, they're not neutral. To suggest, oh, even if it is a lie, if it benefits you somehow, then so be. That is, that has, that, that has this presupposition assigned to it that the lie itself is neutral, but lies are not neutral. Deceitfulness is not neutral. In fact, if we follow lies and we follow deceitfulness all the way back to its source, we find ourselves face to face with Satan himself because Jesus tells us that he is the father of all lies. And he was a liar from the beginning and that it is his character to be deceitful. So we see there's a great power in lies and we see the damage of lies they're not neutral. Now, with that kind of in the back of our mind, let's take a start to take a look at our text. And before we do, when we, when we see the word formerly there, we recognize that, you know, verse 8 sets in a context. I'm always making a lot of noise about context when we're studying Scripture. We, we always need to be mindful of the context. And for the benefit of those who didn't hear anything about verses 1 through 7, let's just do a quick review. It does us good. It does me good to review this stuff because it helps put... If you want to internalize this, you have to continually have times of, uh, times of going over it and then space in between. Just space and repetition. Space and re- That's how you store this stuff up in your heart. Um, let's take a look at it again. If you look at verse 1, Paul's introducing there some, some metaphors, if you will. He's making use of the metaphor of the child heir, if you will, uh, the slave, guardians and managers. You know, Paul says, a child, an heir. He says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. And the word slave, it's a, a Greek is doulos. It could be translated slave. It could be translated servant. And last week, we, we tried to put ourselves in the shoes of the ancient servant, if you will, working in a uh, master's household. And someone comes to us and says, you know, uh, really, the, you, you look over there. You see the, the, the heir of the estate there. You see him. Uh, he really, at the end of the day, is no different than us. What do you think we would say to that? We would probably have to say, what are you talking about? He is no different than us. I mean, he doesn't go to the same school we go to. He doesn't eat from the same table we eat from. He's, he's privileged. Down the line they would go. Uh, and besides that, one of these days, in the not-so-far future, he's going to inherit this whole thing. That's not in our future. What do you mean it's the same? Well, Paul explains himself in verse 2. He says, that he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. And what Paul means by that is, you know, on Monday morning, he is just like us in the respect that he's not free to do whatever he wants. You know, I, I like in the, I used the example of going to a high school uh, uh, last week, if I remember right, was the illustration that I used. And I want to be careful of this because I don't want to soil high school for anybody who might be in high school, but I didn't care for high school. It was a tr- just really, it was just couldn't wait to get out of there. Uh, I didn't have any choice. And the point is, this child heir doesn't have any choice. When he wakes up Monday morning, he's going to be told where he's going to go. He's going to be told what he's going to do. And the same thing applies to the servants in the household, right? And really, at the end of the day, that applies to us, does it not? And Paul's using this as an illustration. 
He says in verse 4, well, let's finish verse 3. He says, in the same way we also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, what in the world are the elementary principles of the world? We spent a lot of time last week on that. And it's, that's, that's a tricky one, isn't it? I, I presented three definitions last week, and I think it's good to, for us to have these three definitions in our minds. One definition of it's one word, actually. Uh, elementary principles is just one word in the original, stoicheia. And it, 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 the first definition we might give to that word is it's the fundamental components of the universe. You might remember that. In Paul's day, the Greek philosophers defined those as fire, as earth, as air and water. So it'd be the fundamental components of the universe. A second definition is spiritual beings. A third definition is the essential principles of an area of study. We went to, or to Hebrews 5 last week and saw a very clear uh, use of the word that way. The uh, essential principles. You go into an area of study, whether it be you know, whether it be uh, medicine or it might be dentistry or whatever, you're going to learn those basic principles, those stoicheia, those essential principles of that field of discipline, if you will. So you have those three, those three definitions. And uh, I'm, I'm indebted to Douglas Moo and, and, and really in starting my thinking about this, he suggests that the first one, although the first one doesn't seem to fit the context that well, he suggests that that's probably the best definition, namely the fundamental components of the universe. Now, what is his reasoning? His reasoning is, well, the ancients worshipped the stars. They worshipped the heavenly bodies. They worshipped the sea. They worshipped all, all kinds of things. And what were the stars? They were, they were fire in the sky, if you will. So you can see the fundamental components. Fire, air, uh, earth, uh, water. You can see the relationship. Uh, I'll give you my own personal opinion on it. I think, and one of the reasons why I want to give all three definitions to you is I think there's a connotation of all three of these definitions here. Okay, if the ancients are worshiping the heavenly bodies, okay, there's the first definition, primary components or fundamental components of the universe. But they, establish, but they, they, they ascribe to these heavenly bodies names of deities, of gods. So they're ascribing spiritual beings if you will, to these things. And out of that, they develop these basic religious rites, if you will, basic principles. I think we see all three uh, in this. I, I think, I like it when you don't have to decide. Someone said, you want apple pie? You want cherry pie? You want chocolate? Say, how about, all, how about a slice of all three? Huh? In this case, we can take a slice of all three because I think that's what, I think that fits the contest really well. But the point is, they were enslaved to this. Now, uh, last week I kind of give you a really quick summary of all this. If I was, if I had two minutes with my colleague uh, tomorrow at work at the coffee pot, I wouldn't go into all of that. And if they were to ask me, hey, you know, in Galatians chapter four, verse three, we got this like strange phrase, elementary principles of the world. What is that all about? I would be inclined to say, well, that's how we reason before we come to Christ. It's how we reason before we come to Christ. You know, you, you could you, you go, go talk to people. Talk to people who haven't come to Jesus yet. Just talk to them. You hear all kinds of different things, but you also hear a whole bunch of the same, too. There's a way that we reason. There's a way that seems right to us before we come to Jesus. And it, it's, a, it's just, there's so many commonalities. 
we are enslaved to these basic elementary principles of the world, if you will. We're enslaved to these things. And that's what Paul's pointing out. But then look at verse 4. And thank goodness there's verse 4, isn't there? But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Now, your mind just wants to go back to Genesis 3.15, to that initial promise right after Adam and Eve fall in the garden. God comes in and he promises that a son would be born to the woman who is going to redeem humanity, right? And here we see, after all of these centuries, in the fullness of time, not only to God, you know, many commentators are very right on this verse to say, listen, it's pointless to speculate why God chose this particular time. And I, agree, I couldn't agree with that more. I think that would be a waste of all of our time to sit and start speculating on that, as some of commentaries will do and spend a lot of pages on that. We just don't know. But in God's mind, it was the right time. And he sent forth Jesus. Jesus is born of the woman, Genesis 3.15, born under the law. What does that mean? Lots of things could be said about that, but just for the sake of our review, Adam is, is created, placed in a garden, and he's in a probation period, isn't he? He represents all humanity, and his all humanity basically is resting in Adam's obedience, isn't it? Adam fails. What happens? All humanity plunges into darkness with him. Jesus comes as the last Adam, and guess what? Same conditions, only worse conditions, really. We could say a lot about that. But Jesus also represents humanity in the respect. He represents redeemed humanity. Who does Jesus represent? He represents all those who will put their faith and trust in him. That's who he represents. And Jesus is victorious, isn't he? And thought, word, indeed, he is perfect through his entire life. He never sins. What's the point? Verse 5, to redeem those who are under the law. Well, that takes us back to chapter 3, verse 13, which is a beautiful verse. Look at it often. Look at chapter 3, verse 13, often. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. What's that all about? What does the law do? The law continually points out our faults, doesn't it? And in fact, it not only points out our faults, but it condemns us, doesn't it? It condemns us. So as lawbreakers, we're all under the curse of the law. But in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son who come to redeem us from the curse of the law. How does he come to do that? By becoming a curse for us. How does that work? Look to the cross. What's he doing up there suffering? He's suffering for the curse of the law, not because of his own disobedience. He's perfect, but it's for our disobedience. That's the beauty of that. That's the sheer beauty of the gospel message right there. To redeem those who were under the law. Look at the second half of this verse. So that we might receive adoption as sons. That was my point last week. I began last week by saying, you know, it's really dangerous to lose sight of the treasures that we have in Christ, isn't it? Even as true believers, when we lose, when we lose sight of the treasures we have in Christ, we will typically backpedal into some kind of performance mode, won't we? That's what we do. <laughs> Listen, I'm in it with you. How do I know we do this? It's because I've caught myself doing this hundreds of times where I'll be praying and just killing myself in prayer. And I'll be like, well, wait a second. Where, where are you at? Where are you at here? You're stepping completely aside from the gospel. You know, um, we do this. 
In verse 5, we see these, these wonderful treasures that we have in Christ. And this also, the, one of the applications I made uh, last week also was we, we f- oftentimes people fail to come to saving faith because, one, they don't know the treasures that are in Christ. You know, that's my, one of my beefs with cookie-cutter evangelism where you have this cookie-cutter approach is a lot of times they don't, they don't, they don't have... They don't talk about, they might talk about the law, giving people the law. We need to do that. If we're talking to the right person, we need to do that. We, I don't think we need to do that universally to everybody. I know there's lots of people you'll crush if you do that. But repentance, Paul tells us, is a result of coming in touch with God's kindness. And we have to present the gifts that we have in Christ Jesus. We have to present the treasures that we have in Christ Jesus. Because we can, well, a lot of the reasons we fail to come to saving faith is because we fail to see the treasures that are in Christ. Why should we let go of earthly treasure that we can, that we can see, that we can, that we can feel, that we can taste and we can touch? Unless there's better treasure somewhere else. That's the point. There is better treasure somewhere else. He's in Christ Jesus. Doesn't Jesus tell us two parables like that? It's like a merchant going through a field and he discovers a great pearl, so he buries it again. He sells everything that he has. So he can buy the entire field, knowing the pearls in that field. We've got to present the pearl. If we don't understand the pearl, or sometimes we can come to understand the pearl, but we don't appropriate it, meaning we don't take it to be our own. These are two areas where we can stall. And I think that second one is so sad. Imagine an eternity lost without Jesus, an eternity in hell, when in this life you stared at the pearl. You were right there, and you stared at the pearl, but you didn't take the pearl to be your own. I can't imagine the regret of that. I, I can't imagine it. But look at, look at these wonderful treasures that we have in Christ. Adoption as sons and, and daughters. Adoption. Because you are sons and daughters, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. This is what Jesus is doing in the Garden of Gethsemane when he says, Father, take this cup from me. If there be another way, take this cup from me. He's crying, Abba, Father. And by and when we come to faith in Christ and we're brought into union with Christ, we're adopted as sons and daughters, and now we have the privilege of crying the same way to God. If you look at verse 7, you're no longer a slave. Oh, yeah, we were slaves prior to coming to Jesus. But now we are sons, but a son. If a son, then an heir, actually a co-heir. <laughs> we go back to the first illustration I started with, you know, the illustration of being in the servant's house, you know, and someone coming in saying, see that child heir there? He's really at the end of the day. He's no different than you. And we would all have, initially, have a beef with him, wouldn't we? Hey, there is one big difference. He's going to inherit this whole thing. Well, guess what? In the kingdom of God, we inherit with Christ. You know, if you've ever thought of that, we're, we inherit with Christ. Now, after all this, Paul says in verse 8, formally, formally. What's Paul talking about? Well, he's going back to verses 1, 2, and 3. Formerly, formerly before we knew Jesus, if you will. Formerly, before we heard the gospel preached and we embraced it. Formerly, when you did not know God, says verse 8, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Now, notice the word enslaved. I want to tease some things out of that word 
uh, this morning as we continue to work our way through this. You know, th- this enslavement actually happens on many, many fronts. I think I have three here I want to share. Um, whether Paul has in mind the false worship of the Galatians before uh, his missionary activity came to Galatia, whether he has that in mind, or he has uh, law-keeping, if you will, that uh, many of the uh, ancient Israelites were doing, taking God's law and using it to build a ladder to get to heaven, a stairway to get to heaven. Uh, either way, this is false worship, isn't it? I, I don't think we, again here, I don't think we need to choose either or. I think we should choose both because what's the end result? If we're misusing God's law to try to build our own ladder to heaven, which is legalism, What's the difference at the end of the day or if we're practicing some other kind of false religion? They're both false religion, are they not? And both fail to see God as he's being offered in the scriptures, don't they? That's another problem with this thing. You know, it doesn't, like, like I read some statistics this week that are amazing, and I think these statistics were from 2016. So I have little hope that they're any better now. But 40% of people who profess to be born again believe that everybody's calling out to God at the end of the day just under different names. You follow me? Oh, at the end of the day, everyone's praying to the same God. They're just using different names for him. That's really frightening. I mean, it'd be frightening if it was 20%, but the statistics showed it was in well into the 40 percentile. That's almost half. And you have to wonder, what kind of understanding do they have of the gospel? That's why I'm always careful when I say, listen, we need to receive Jesus as he is offered in Scripture, as he is offered in the gospel. Why do I say that all the time? I learned that from the catechism. Why do I say that all the time? I say that all the time because we are masters at crafting our own personal Jesus. We'll just create our own Jesus. He's not the real Jesus that we've created, though. As we gather here for worship, undoubtedly, there are people that are gathered who are singing, maybe even some of the same songs that we're singing. It's unlikely, but they might be. And they're actively involved in false worship. Because who are they directing this worship to? Are they directing... This worship to the God who has revealed himself in Scripture. If you're not, you're violating the first commandment because God says in the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, by the time we get the first commandment in Exodus 20, keep in mind, God has been pretty specific about who he is in Exodus 3. Moses says, Lord, when I get to Egypt and I tell Pharaoh to let all my people go, who who might I tell him has sent me? God says, tell him Yahweh has sent you. And besides that, what's the preface to the Lord's? What's the preface to the Ten Commandments? I am the Lord, your God. And in case that isn't specific enough, I'm the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And even when they're worshiping their calf, that they, you know, when Moses is on the mountain, if you're familiar with Exodus, you know Exodus 32. They're on, they're on the mountain. Moses is on the mountain. What happens? All this false worship begins uh, down in the camp, and they have fashioned a golden calf, and they're worshiping the golden calf. 
And here this golden calf is, who is it meant to represent? I think an argument can be made. It was meant to represent God, but it's not God as he's offered in the scriptures. So false worship, what, what false worship breaks the first commandment and in breaking the first commandment, it breaks all of the commandments. And you can see how enslaving that is coming to worship. And that brings to the second point, their religious convictions continue to keep judgment upon them. This is a real lovely message you got going on here, Rick. Isn't this so enlightening? We have to cover it. Okay, so we're offering false worship Sunday in and Sunday out. And it's because our religious convictions are as such that far from liberating us, they continue to enslave us because far from pleasing. You notice how I start all of our services. I ask the Lord to empower us in such a way so that this service of worship will be something that's honoring to Him and pleasing to Him. Why do I do that? I do that on purpose. And I don't know that there's very many Sundays I forget to do that because that's on my mind as I come in here. That this worship service will be a worship service that's not tickling our own fancies, but it's a worship service that's pleasing to Him. That's what this has to be about. Him. Sometimes Tammy and I, you know, when we have a Sunday off, we'll go and visit worship services. And I'll tell you, you can tell, you can tell in two seconds flat who the focus of a worship service is. You know, I don't want to say any more than that because I don't want to give up where, when, where, and who, and why. I don't want to give up all those details. But we found ourselves in a worship service and it started. And I can tell you right now, it was thoroughly man-centered. I knew that 10 seconds in. And it never changed. This isn't about us. This isn't about us. Our religious convictions could be such that it will continue to keep God's judgment upon us. And instead of making us right with God, it could continually offend Him. Thank goodness for His mercy, right? A third one, they vigorously labored in vain to appease gods who cannot save. You know... I think of the prophets of Baal, if you're familiar with 1 Kings 17 and 18, right at the end of 1 Kings, probably your favorite book, right? 1 Kings. Yeah, I was reading that this morning. I'm glad you brought that up. I was hoping you'd bring that up. It's my favorite book. Yeah. The end of 1 Kings, there's a contest that goes on between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Has anybody heard that story? You know, there's been a drought for three years, and because of three-year drought, there's been a famine for three years. No rain, no crops, no food. Can't even water your horses or your livestock or anything. This is bad. It's, a, it's an economic disaster. And God tells Elijah to go to the king and to have the king summon all Israel, summon the Baal prophets, summon the prophets of Asherah. There's 450 prophets of Baal who show up. I assume the 400 prophets of Asherah show up. And um, they're told to sacrifice a bull and lay the bull on their altar and call on Baal to bring fire down uh, on the altar. That should be simple enough. Go ahead and call on Baal. Call on your God. Have him bring fire down from heaven to ignite this sacrifice. So they do it. They sacrifice their bull. They put the bull on the altar. And they begin to call on Baal. Baal doesn't answer them. So they begin to work themselves into a frenzy. You read those passages they're, they're working themselves into a frenzy, and still Baal does not cause fire to come down out of heaven. And then they do something that's quite interesting, and it's so pertinent to our current culture. They begin to cut themselves. They lance themselves. 
And there you can really see something. I mean, they're doing everything they can. Just as my point says, they vigorously labored in vain to appease their gods who cannot save them. They never do get fire to come down out of heaven. And today, I mean, someone might say, well, Rick, why is this so particular to our culture? I don't know anybody that, you know, I've been to the coffee plot at work many times and Baal just don't come up very often. Baal doesn't come up very often. But I'll tell you what false god does come up very often. It's the god of self. Self comes up all the time. Self looks in the mirror and says, I don't like the way you look, so I'm going to starve you. I don't like the way you look. I'm going to kill you in the gym until you look a certain way. Self looks in the mirror and says, I don't like the way I'm performing at the workplace. Self looks at this. Self looks at that. Self says, I don't like the way I feel. You're going to get me that drug. Self says this. Self says this. Self says this. The God of self speaks. And what happens? We vigorously labor in vain to try to appease a God. Self can never save us. Can it? Can never save us. We think about how we labor. Notice in verse 8, Paul says, Formerly, that is before they come to know Christ, formerly before they heard the gospel and embraced it, that they were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Notice there's something easy for us to miss in that verse. Paul's not saying that these beings don't exist. You follow that? You were enslaved to those. Who are they? Keep your place in Galatians and just turn left. You're going to come to 2 Corinthians. Keep going to 1 Corinthians and go to chapter 10. It'll be page 958 if you're using the church's Bible. And look at verses 19 and 20. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 19 and 20. Paul says, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, verse 20. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to what? To demons and not to God. Doesn't matter what you believe, right? How can 40% of born-again people say that? that it doesn't matter what you believe. When it's really clear here, what is behind? If, if, you, if, you, if you look at verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 19 and 20, and you go back to what Paul says in verse 8, Galatians 4, verse 8, those that by nature are not gods. Paul's not denying the existence of something. What he's denying is that they are God. But keep in mind, behind all lies and false religion are the existence of very powerful demonic beings. That's what Paul is saying. And he was saying, formerly, you were enslaved to them. Paul says it another way in 2 Corinthians. He says, the God of this world has blinded the, mind, the eyes of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the truth. That's why you share the gospel with people and you can... You get this. 
Undoubtedly, there were times in my own life where people would have shared the gospel with me and I would have been, and it would have been like this. The eyes have to be open, don't they? That's why Jesus says, he who has eyes to see, let him see. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Those eyes have to be opened. They have to be opened. Paul's not denying that there are not powerful beings behind these things. Paul's denying that there are gods. A couple of points, and I want to get these right. I've got them in my notes. Scripture unapologetically calls all other religions false. Scripture unapologetically reveals that the demonic realm is behind all these idols and religions. So let's not in our minds think that these things are harmless. They're very dangerous because the demonic realm is behind them. And that's the other point. Because the demonic realm is behind these false religions, they're not neutral but quite powerful and dangerous. I would direct that to lies in general. Lies are not neutral. Lies are toxic, cancerous, and dangerous. Now, if we closed right now, it'd be awful, wouldn't it? All right, let's wrap up in prayers. <laughs> it'd be terrible. I've read sermons that do that. Uh, some of them preached by Jonathan Edwards. Next week, we're going to look at grace, you know. <laughs> let's do it now, okay? <laughs> let's do it now. Uh, let's do it now. No, look at verse 9. Notice the word but, how important that word often is, isn't it? But, now that you've come to know God, look at that, you've come to know God. You've come to know God. Let's tease that out a little bit. In case you're wondering what in the world Jeremiah had to do with any of this, keep your place in Galatians and go back to that passage in Jeremiah we looked at at the beginning of our service. Jeremiah 31, page 660, if you're using the church's Bible. I just want to read it really um, we don't have time to get into too much more this morning. I won't keep you much longer. But verse 34, you know, speaking prophetically at a time that's coming, we're told that no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Now, with that in mind, Turn with me and keep your place in Galatians. You can let go of Jeremiah. Keep your place in Galatians and turn to the back of the Bible to 1 John chapter 2. You go to Revelation and go backwards, you'll find John's letters, uh, Jude, then 3 John, 2 John, 1 John, page 1022 if you're using the church's Bible. If you look at chapter 2, verse 20, we have these words, but you have been anointed. Now, John is speaking here to believers, and he says to believers, you have been what? You've been anointed by who? The Holy One, and you all have what? Knowledge. Now, what, Paul, what, what is John referring to here? He's referring to this anointing. Interesting thing, the word anointed here in this particular passage is chrisma. Think of chrisma for a moment. And think of Christos. Say they sound similar, don't they? Chrisma, Christos. Well, Christos, you will recognize, is the Greek word for Christ. The English word Christ comes from Christos. And what does Christos mean? It means anointed. The Messiah is the anointed one, right? And here we have an anointing, a Chrisma, 
Christos, Chrisma. Here we have an anointing. What is this anointing? This anointing is the effect that the gospel has on us when we believe. When the eyes are opened, when the, when the ears are opened, and we begin to see the beauty of Christ. And who are we anointed by? This is really interesting detail. You know, this is one that I've spent a little time puzzling over. We're anointed by the Holy One, right? And I think probably most of us would say, okay, who is the Holy One in this passage? Probably most of us are going to say the Holy Spirit, right? Some of you are not, you're, I, I think you're thinking the Holy Spirit, but you're like, uh, why is he putting it this way? I don't want to. It's not wrong. It's not wrong. But it's not specific either, is it? I mean, God could have been really specific if he wanted it to. It doesn't say Holy Spirit. It says Holy One. And when you go through Scripture, you'll find sometimes the Holy Spirit's referred to. I think here the Holy Spirit's certainly in view, no question. Uh, the Holy Spirit's referred to as the Holy One. Other times, Jesus is referred to as the Holy One, the demonics, the demons, the demoniacs. What do they say? They, they refer to him as the Holy One. God is, the Father is referred to as the Holy One. I think it's really interesting that the anointed... And the anointing are it's just almost a play on words, isn't it? Christos, Chrisma. Here we have, you've all been anointed, Chrisma, by the Holy One. I, again, I don't know that we really need to choose here. I think we can have a piece of cherry, a piece of apple, and a piece of pumpkin. How about pumpkin? I can't make up my mind what kind I want. They're all good. I'm often in that dilemma because mom makes some pretty mean pies. Which one do you choose? You know, take a small slice of all three. Certainly, it, and when we think about the economic trinity, we generally associate applying the gospel as the work of the Holy Spirit. God, Father decrees uh, all that comes to pass. Uh, uh, the Son comes and goes through the earthly ministry, and he's the one who uh, merits and accomplishes salvation, and the Holy Spirit applies it. We like to put things in those ni nice, neat little categories, and that's fine for systematics. However, things are usually not quite that neat and clean, are they? You ever notice when you try, like if you try to outline, I, try this, try to write an outline of 1 John. I don't know if it, it, some of them might think, well, that don't sound like too big of a deal. If you've come to that conclusion, you've never tried to write an outline of 1 John. It is really, really difficult to come up with an outline, at least an outline that fits nice and neatly in Western North American um, outlines that are nice, clean, and neat. Which, who, does anybody here have a life that's outlined nice, clean, and neat? I don't see any hands. Raise your hand. If your life is like nice and outlined, nice, clean. There's no gray. It's just black. It's white. It's nice and neat. Start to finish. Come on. Somebody has to raise one hand. Maybe even raise a half. Like someone like, I'm not quite sure. I don't even see anybody doing this. I, I, I'm going to give you my opinion here. Just take it for what it's worth. This is just my opinion. But I think that we really should be thinking of the entire triune God when we see Holy One. We shouldn't be discounting the Son and the Father. That's my point. 
Let's think about it. We have the anointed and we have the anointing. Jesus is certainly the anointed one. You have this idea of anointing all through the Old Testament. You have, you have Aaron the priest being anointed for his priestly service. You have David the king being anointed for, for his kingly service. Then you have the promise in Isaiah 61 of this great anointing for the one who is to come. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison for those who are bound. And what does Jesus do in Luke chapter 4? He goes into Nazareth, into the synagogue. He rolls, opens up Isaiah to the place, and he reads that passage and says, Today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Who is Jesus? He is the anointed one. John tells us that he is anointed with the Holy Spirit beyond measure. How can we remove him from this text? How are we going to take the anointed one out of this text? I think we must keep him in this text. And, of course, he is sent by the Father. I, th I think that takes this text and it's just, I think that just blows this text up the way it's supposed to be. You see, it, was, it wasn't just the work of the Holy Spirit working in our hearts, and it was the work of the Holy Spirit. It was his work in our hearts. But he's in cahoots with the Son and the Father. You mean they all showed up? Yes, they all showed up. Oh, if we could get one of them to come, that would be great. If we could get one to come and speak today, that would be great. They don't come single file. They don't come by themselves. They don't go on solo projects. They don't say to one another, hey, could you clear your planner because we got something going on here. We're going to go see Payton this weekend. What do you mean, can I clear my planner? My planner looks just like your planner. We don't have independent planners. Are you with me? The entire triune God touched your heart and anointed you so that Paul could say this about you if you're in Christ. Verse 9, chapter 4. Now that you have come to know God. And I think that helps us. That helps us understand this other business here, or rather to be known by God. Again, John helps us understand that. What's it mean to be rather to be known by God? I put the verse here so we wouldn't have to look it up. First John 4.19. We love because he what? He first loved us. If you're, if you're in, here's the thing. If you're, in, if you're in Christ this morning, you're only in Christ because he first knew you. I mean, it's wonderful. We have a wonderful testimony if we say, you know, I have decided to follow Jesus. That is wonderful, isn't it? And that's how it starts, isn't it? I mean, we make this decision and we want to follow Jesus. We make this decision and we're like, I, I want Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. But then we begin to read our Bibles some more. We begin to grow a little bit and we discover, wait a second, why did I ever follow Jesus? It's because he first came to you. It's because he first loved you. That's grace. That's the amazing part of grace. Is it not? I got more, but I think we probably ought to. Why don't we just leave it there? Does that sound good? Heavenly Father, we thank you, O Lord, for these wonderful truths. We've seen the danger of false religion this morning, Father. 
we've seen the danger and the, the toxicity of lies and deceitfulness. But, Father, we've also come to see the work of your hands, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the work of the anointed anointing, the work of the Father sending the anointed to anoint, the work of the Holy Spirit applying this wonderful, this wonder, these wonderful truths and beauteous, beauteous and glorious things to our hearts. Oh, Father, we thank you for these things, Lord. Fill us with these things, O oh Father. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.